want our special ops to do and our SAS in particular is to be able to tackle those missions without precedent, to be able to come up with um, novel solutions to, to problems that, that we haven't thought about before. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Ben Pronk is a soldier's soldier. At the Australian Defence Force Academy, he was the Academy Cadet Captain. He gained entry into the elite Special Air Services Regiment, a unit of 700 soldiers based in Perth. After 9-11, he served on multiple deployments and was decorated for leadership in action. He finished his career as commanding officer in the SAS and recently retired after 24 years in the Army. Ben's now managing partner at Metal Global Holdings, a consultancy focused on risk and crisis leadership. Ben, thanks so much for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. My pleasure, Andrew. So did you always want to be a soldier growing up? I think I did. Um, my father was a, an army officer. He flew helicopters and uh, not through any sort of coercion from him, but I'd just seen what was on offer as a military officer, how much he'd enjoyed his career. And I think a bit of that boy's own adventure style of things. He'd tell us wonderful stories about flying survey missions in Papua New Guinea and in the northwest of Australia. And so those kind of life less ordinary um, options mm. that, that seem to be available through the military were, were pretty attractive. So what does a high schooler who wants to have a, a great career in the, in the military do to prepare themselves? Probably not what I did. I sort of, <laughs> I, I was always, I, academically I was okay and, and um, relatively driven on the, the academic side, but certainly not the, the sporting uh, sort of Guy. In fact, I, I still get a lot of um, static from my friends about my my uh, complete lack of sporting prowess. Um, so I think is that because you didn't try, or because uh, you, you just went very good? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I'd like to say it's because I didn't try. I think it's more because I wasn't wasn't very good. And also, I don't think I'd I'd ha- the the bug hadn't bitten me. Um, mm, and mm. and so it it took me a while, sort of uh, after leaving school, to to really get into. And I think, like yourself, I got into distance running as a as a bit of a first step. Um, and, you know, again, probably exactly like yourself, once you, you get that bug and you, you, um, you find the satisfaction and the, the personal development you can gain from that, that was a, definitely a stepping stone in that direction. So to answer your original question, I think some level of physical activity would, would probably be a good thing. Um, and, look, the, the academic side of things is super important. Um, I think it's getting less so, but certainly in my father's day and age, there was a bit of a perception that if you couldn't get a proper job, you could always join the army. And, and so I think that, uh, you know, there was a, a bit of a stigma in some cases about being in the army as it pertained to sort of intelligence and flexibility of thought, which um, certainly in my experience is, is almost the, the polar opposite these days. So you went to Adfa straight out of high school? No, I took a year off. I was graduated from high school relatively young up in Queensland and wouldn't have been of drinking age uh, by the time I hit Adfa. Um, that sounds really bad, doesn't it, that that was the deciding factor? <laughs> I think for a bunch of reasons. Um, my father and I actually, I took a, a gap year, um, although they weren't calling it 
that back then. Mm. Uh, and we did a lot of travel around Australia, which was just this incredible formative experience and wonderful time with dad and just the two of you yeah um so we we did a bunch of different trips i guess the the culmination of it was um actually supporting an army adventure training exercise that was walking across the great sandy desert with camels Mm. we're in the support crew and we'd meet them every sort of six days and do this incredible driving and sort of resupply this camel train and just an amazing adventure and, and a really special time had your dad retired by this stage? How did how did he have the time to uh, to, to do such wonderful stuff with you? <laughs> he had just retired, and in fact, it's it's a funny, not a dissimilar career arc. He'd got to the point um, we're living in Toowoomba in southeast Queensland at mm. the time. I just finished high school. My brother had a couple of years left, and um, they were about to post every the family back to Canberra, and it was that real sort of family or job decision point for him. Um, and so he he just retired at that point. So it was a, a nice little bookend I guess to his yeah. military career and to, to my school years. Has it made you think you want to do the same thing with your kids? At that Without age? a doubt yeah. yeah it was very I mean my father passed last year and so you know I'm, I'm, I guess I'm getting sort of sentimental looking back on it um, but it was a, a very special time and you know all these sort of transition from boyhood to manhood type mm. thing you know it was a, a, a very formative year and I'm very glad I'd done that prior to, to joining the army. I think at that point I, I um, you know, I'd been sort of a, a schoolboy and then having that year I, I think I was in a much better position to, to go into the army and into the Defence Force Academy. Yeah, it's interesting. I've talked to other interviewees about the, uh, the way in which they, as parents, try to create something which is in a way akin to the old tribal rituals that mark that transition from boyhood boyhood to manhood and just highlighting the fact that we as society don't do this particularly well. Mm. Um, So what were your impressions of ADFA when you got there? Look, I loved it and I still am an enormous advocate of ADFA as an institution. It uh, gets periodically bad press for, for a whole bunch of different things but Particularly in, in our day, it was tri-service, you know, everyone was mixed together, both mm. genders, uh, three services, the three year levels were all put together into a divisional structure. Um, and so it was a, a wonderful um, networking, if nothing else, opportunity. Mm. And when you look at sort of like militaries across the world, not many of them do that. Um, and certainly as I progressed through my career, um, I reckon it was a first decade I couldn't get on a a navy vessel or an aircraft without knowing someone on board which was just fantastic um so yeah and that that structurally institutionally I think was was very positive but it was it was really good fun you know good hard training um obviously the academic uh side of things and that great you know I think we'll probably come back to talk about initiation Mm. rituals or, or sort of tribal type um, concepts, but it was certainly that any form of shared hardship can really bring people together and you, you develop those closenesses that, that last throughout life. You said you weren't that sporty at school. Did you find that initial uh, training at ADFA pretty tough? I'd had a bit of a sort of metamorphosis in that year off. I'd, I'd recognised that, um, you know, things have just got real. I'm about to join the army and um, I probably needed to be in better shape and so had. Um, quit my nascent smoking habits and, and started running. Uh, 
and to the point where I found myself actually in, as one of the fitter individuals at Adfa. So the the fitness was was pretty good. Um, my coordination to this day <laughs> remains pretty embarrassing, and unfortunately, I think I've passed that on to my kids as well. At, at some point, my wife's extremely sporty. She sort of played basketball for the state and stuff, and she despairs at, at some of my genes coming out <laughs> in, in our children. So how do you become the academy cadet captain, which is, you know, why I guess the sort of the equivalent of, uh, of, of the, the, the head prefect of, uh, of, of Adfa? Exactly, as my wife says, the hall monitor. Um, <laughs> look, it was a, a combination of what they called uh, officer qualities and, and your academic results. And so, um, look, it, it was by being a bit of a goody two-shoes. Again, I, I look back and wonder if I, I shouldn't have enjoyed <laughs> some of the, the more traditional university pursuits um, a bit more. But... Look, I, I was very focused at that point and, and I guess to an extent have remained that way um, throughout my life but was really wanted to achieve in, in both the military and the, the mm. academic side of things. And so, um, yeah, I, I did sort of buckle down and, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, sort of pursue those goals. At what stage did you then go on to apply for, uh, for the SAS? Yeah. It was a funny um, journey. I'd always... Uh, had that as as this, I guess, pedestal sort of idea. Mm. Um, but I remember, in fact, I remember coming home from, I think, first year Adfer and, and saying to my dad, who was um, uh, obviously spent his career in the military, I said, look, Dad, what's this SAS stuff all about? And, you know, what what, what do you think about that? And he said, mate, you don't want to do that. He said that these SAS guys, they're, they're nutcases, He's, you know, as you'll be going out to, to drink a beer on a Friday night, they'll be walking around with rocks in their pack and, you know, it's, it's the wrong sort of thing. And actually, you know, life imitating art. About five years later, I distinctly remember in Laverack Barracks in Townsville where I was training for selection on a Friday night, my mates driving past on their way out onto a, to a, um, to a pub, throwing beer cans at me, calling me a moron. And I thought, <laughs> yep, Dad, you were right. Um, but no, Dad's view was always very much... Um, you know, you've got two choices. You can either carry your house around on your back or you can fly home to a, a five-star hotel. And he, he obviously chose the latter. But I'd always had a bit of an inkling. Um, mm. And then in our third year, the adjutant um, at the, the academy, um, who's actually now the special operations commander, um, as the the head prefect, the, the head hall monitor, um, I had a relatively close relationship with him. And so he was an ex-SAS guy and, and got a lot more understanding of it there, which really sowed the seeds. So as I understand it, there's two screens. There's an initial sort of physical and interview screen that takes out about a third of people, and then there's the three-week selection course that takes out about two-thirds of those who uh, who, who start in it. Yep. Um, the uh, the first is sounds fairly straightforward, but that 21-day course, what's it like? What do you what, what do people do? Because you've not only done it, you've run it. That's right, and it's it's really interesting seeing both sides of it um, when you're on it particularly the first time and particularly relatively naive as I was I think people these days are a lot more sophisticated towards you know what the process is designed mm. to test and prepare themselves better but um, yeah when you're on it you just seem to think things are coming at you in a very random and, and sort of barbaric order um, but obviously there's a lot more structure behind it look as a as a um, candidate uh, it, it is what it says on the tin, you know, it is designed to test your ability to to uh, continue functioning in very arduous, ambiguous circumstances. Um, and it's it's very interesting for, for me, looking back both uh, as a candidate and um, as directing staff running it, um, 
very little of it is actually about physicality. I mean, there is a base level of physicality which is required for the job. Um, certainly the, the most arduous military thing I've ever done was, was in Afghanistan and not on the, the selection course, right, you know, so it right. gets harder. Um, and it does need to prove a base level. You need a certain level of fitness. Keep it concrete for us, Ben. What sort of things are people being asked to do? So it is it is heavy. So food and sleep deprivation is a base. So on, on a number of these activities within that How selection course. How much food? Course. How much sleep? Uh, sort of none, a uh, couple hours sleep a night, um, no food, sort of for about a five-day period, give or take, you know. Um, so really designed to, to simulate, you know, to get you to a relatively low ebb. And it, it does a couple of things. First, so zero, zero calories for five days? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I tell a lie. There is traditionally one meal in it um, designed to be as unappetising as possible. It might be some form of genitalia and jelly or something like this, again, uh, designed to, to sort of... Uh, put you in a, a circumstance where you know you need to prioritise caloric intake, and so yeah. you'll you'll eat things that are unappealing. Yeah. Um, but by and large, no food and and couple of hours sleep, sort of periodically right. throughout a right. twenty four hour period. Yeah. Um, and it really serves the the function of just stripping you down to to who you are as an individual. I mean, you get a lot of people who can put on a show or, or some kind of facade and sort of get through certain aspects of it, but it's very hard to keep that up when you're at, at that level. So that's one thing it does. And the second thing it does... What, what are people doing? Oh, but we Sorry call to it, keep on intro, no, interrupting No, no, no. I just... Uh, you, you, we call it DS watching, directing staff watching. So they're, they're performing spectacularly when, when the assessors are around and they're, they're saying all the right things and they're, um, you know, doing all the right things or, you know, pushing heavily on the, the, the trailer but not actually uh, exerting any effort, these kind of things. Um, those kind of... Uh, like I said, facades get very difficult to maintain mm. over mm. time um, when you're when you're you're completely exhausted, and so you you do you see the real person, which is is quite insightful in a number of cases. Um, the other thing is you really see that that mental drive, that ability to keep going, keep putting one step, one foot in front of the other towards a goal, uh, when it seems hopeless or completely ambiguous, and in actual fact, that's what we're screening for. And in my opinion. If we could conduct that same screen without so much emphasis on the, the physical as the vector to do it, um, we'd, we'd have a, a, a really powerful tool. Because there are a lot of people, um, we've recently opened selection up to both genders, um, you know, I think we lose a lot of good people of, of both genders on the physical side of things that could otherwise be employed for that mental drive and that mm. mental ability to, to keep continuing, functioning, thinking relatively clearly in, in those arduous situations uh, just because they haven't got that, that physicality. So I think we're, I mean, I know we're constantly looking at ways of, of sort of finding those characteristics, mm, but mm. Um, so far the, the physical one is, is the, the most powerful and, and most really cogent way that we've found. So you mentioned the task before of uh, pushing a trailer. What's, what other sorts of tasks are making uh, are comprising the days over this, this three-week period? Again, the, that's the difference between the, um, the participant, the candidate and the, the staff. As a candidate, you think it's just pure bastardisation. You know, it is these patently impossible tasks. Carry these extremely heavy, awkward objects, you know, down this ravine up to the other side. You sort of do that 12 hours later, you finally get to the other side. And then they'll say, no, you've got the wrong parts. You need to take them back and, and, and replace them. Another one we had, which was... was in hindsight, hilarious. We had to carry these chickens, live chickens in our pack. That was our food and it was a scenario. 
Uh, and, you know, we were led by this guide who was supposed to be an Indigenous leader and he told us all that chickens are revered in his culture and, if, you know, if you cause the chickens pain, then you will have to do physical punishment sort of thing. And of course, these chickens are squawking. You know, we're carrying stretchers in our packs and the chickens are squawking. Every time the chickens squawked, we'd be doing burpees. And um, I remember, I think most of us got it, that this was just designed to be something difficult mm. and, you know, almost that stoic um, approach where... You know, you accept that you can't stop the chickens squawking. You just need to need to deal with uh, what's in your power to control. And yet, I vividly remember one person just he couldn't get it out of his head. If he could just stop the chickens squawking, then then it'd all be rosy. And and he, he was sort of in tears, saying, "Look, stop banging the chicken." You know, he he sort of missed the the point of what was in his own control. So it was it was things like that. Um, and again, there'd always be the you know, you, the scenario would dictate that you needed to have someone on security and then all of a sudden they'd say, now this person's injured so you need to carry his pack um, just to add the, the weights on, on top of it. And I remember at the time just thinking, this is just pure bastardisation, they're just, you know, trying to get people to drop out. Um, but very amusingly, um, sort of three years later in Afghanistan, we had a situation, five-man patrol on the border with um, Pakistan, uh, did a night insertion, uh, sorry, night resupply, so carrying very heavy packs, 60-odd kilos worth of kit. And as we stepped off from the resupply, our signaller rolled his ankle and couldn't walk, couldn't get the helicopter back in. And so we had to help him carry his pack, you know, have people out looking for bad. It was like this bastardised yes, selection yes. stand except for real. And I, I remember at that point very clearly thinking there's method behind the madness in terms of what they're they're. Uh, they're assessing for. And the dropout process, is that, uh, uh, do people get told that they're out or do they, is, is it mostly just self-selection out where Most, people put their hand up and say, I can't take anymore? Yeah, mostly self-selection. There's a few formal gates, there's a couple of physical tests and there's a couple of periods where we will formally mm. have gates mm. and if people just aren't displaying the characteristics that um, are required, then they'll, um, they'll be um, uh, told they're off. Um, however, it's the vast majority of it is people... WOR withdraw on own request um, and in fact I remember you get issued a, a slip you've got to sign this slip to say I want to withdraw um, and it's it's a bit formalised it's not the Navy SEALs in, in um, uh, Coronado in, in the uh, US they have a bell you know it's quite mm. a famous thing they ring the bell and they're out you know it's not quite as formalised as that but you have to actually go through a process and I remember as soon as I got the slip I tore it up and, and sort of discreetly burnt it at one stage. So I figured that might act as, a, as an insulation, you know. I'd, I'd have to go through the embarrassment of asking for a slip before like I could sign it. like the reverse of burning a draft card. It's great. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I'm in. I'm, in. I'm here to stay. Yeah. Uh, and so in some sense you're selecting for pain threshold, but also, as you say, those, those sort of stoic qualities as, yeah. as well. Did you feel that you uh, gained something from that selection process? Without or did a you... doubt. Okay. And I would... I'd be interested because I never have heard of anyone saying that they didn't learn about right. themselves throughout that. Um, again, it's it's that that uh, a that shared hardship. So you, you become very close mm. with the people you've done selection with, but that um, pushing yourself beyond limits, all those sort of cliches, um, it, it really does go to show what you as an individual are capable of. Yes. and I think it's a very strong platform to then face challenges further down the line. 
Um, there are few things, I'm certainly nowhere near as fit as I was back then, but there are a few physical challenges that I don't think I could, mm, mm. you know, face and, and overcome as a result of, of having gone through that process. Um, and, of course, that's exactly what they're trying to, to do, such that when you're in Afghanistan with a guy with a rolled ankle, you've got to walk however many kilometres to an extraction point carrying his, his pack, you know, you know you can do it. It's going to hurt, mm. um, but you, you know that it's feasible. So then you're in training, and the training is uh, is famously tough. Uh, I understand the SAS has lost uh, more people in training than in combat. Uh, everyone has to learn to jump out of a plane, for example. Uh, how, how do you? How does your typical day look look at uh, training? So this was, you know, if I look back professionally, certainly. Um, it's the most amazing period. So you've, you've trained for selection. It's this crucible moment. Mm. You, you go through it all. You have this awful anticipation right at the very end where they say, OK, the course is over and you don't know if you're selected. And, and then all of a sudden you're in and, and you're just amazingly elated. And then from there, um, there's a, a very distinct fo uh, switch in focus. So at that selection point, essentially you're, you're trying to weed out you know, you're trying to select the people you like, but you, you're trying to, um, I guess, get rid of mm. people who don't display those attributes. After that point, it's within the organisation, the military's best interest to get you to the end state. So you're really trying to keep the people you've got. They've demonstrated that they've got the, the trainability. And bear in mind, the selection course is all about searching for someone who is trainable. Right. And so we very famously have people from um, non-infantry backgrounds, you know, F-18 pilots who do extremely well historically, um, submariners, these sort of characters who have sometimes never really put a pack on their back before the training process. Um, we're looking for the ability to train them in the skills, not the fact that they have those skills coming in the door. And so the next phase is giving them that, that suite of skills. And I, I spoke about Boys Own Adventure. I mean, this is over a year worth of these incredible parachuting courses and diving courses and driving cars fast and blowing things up and all sorts of weapons. It's its just an amazing um, period of, of doing, I guess, things that are at the acme of the military profession, really exciting, uh, interesting courses. And then there's a great deal of flexibility too in, uh, in terms of uh, the weapons that SAS officers are allowed to take into combat, their, uh, their ability to, to modify weapons. Um, people have, uh, have beards or uh, are, allow are allowed to you know, grow, their, grow their hair the way they want to. Why, why is there that sort of uh, almost the, the flowering of individuality within the SAS? What's the thinking behind that? Look, I think, I mean, certainly on the weapons side of things, there's, there's probably not as much flexibility as, as may be um, uh, perceived externally. Um, there's still obviously issued weapons and mm. there's a lot of clever reasons why you can only use things that have gone through that quality control process. So, um, But your, your point is very valid. There is more autonomy within that range of, of um, approved equipment. Um, what I think at the, the core of the answer to that question is, is the concept that in many cases what we want our special ops to do and our SAS in particular is to be able to tackle those missions without precedent, to be able to come up with um, novel solutions to, to problems that, that we haven't thought about before. Um, and so we're very much trying to develop that, that autonomy and that, that lateral thinking and all those sort of characteristics um, within uh, the, the regiment. And so that 
that removal of, of some of those, uh, I guess, more traditional military sort of hierarchical boundaries mm. um, is part of that. And, I mean, bear in mind, it works because we have done that thorough screening process. We are looking for people who are generally more mature, um, they don't need those imposed sort of disciplines and, and sort of rank relationships. Uh, they can respect that an individual is in charge and that, you know, we can have a spirited debate about the, the way to go ahead, but once that decision's made, we'll get on with it. These kind of things which uh, don't necessarily translate into, you know, a larger army structure so mm. yeah that that ability to to i guess come up with new ideas to to think under pressure and to come up with novel solutions is at the heart of the the more relaxed um, and greater levels of autonomy for members of the unit so what sort of uh, those agile problems did you strike on deployment i understand there's limitations as to what you're sure. able, able to talk about but are you able to, to give us some broad examples of uh, sort of complex challenges in yeah the field? i think certainly i was involved in a number of um uh, shipboarding uh operations uh as a troop commander and um, you know the the mv tampa was was one of those and i think that was a really good example of you know, using a force, a, a military force, uh, mainly because the, the problem presented was beyond the capabilities of, you know, the, the civil powers. So the, the police didn't have the reach to get out or, or the, the vehicles or the deployment time or the boats, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was a situation where we were able to um, adapt a suite of military skills. So we were, we were well-trained in sort of boarding hostile vessels and taking down uh, you know, terrorist forces on, on, on a ship. Um, we're able to adapt that into a very sensitive political situation and a achieve an outcome. Now, all sorts of debate about, you know, whether we should have gone or whatever, you know, at that point ours, ours is not the reason why. But we were very clear on, you know, the, the political ramifications of this and that if we went in with a, a sledgehammer and, and sort of... Uh, uh, an overt or, or a more militaristic approach that could have negative consequences in the long run. So that ability to use that military tool in what's essentially a, mm, a mm. sort of political um, uh, capacity is, is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I should remind the listener that this is a uh, no politics, no policy podcast. Yeah, uh, in yeah, case yeah. people wonder why I'm not uh, pursuing all of the uh, political context that uh, that sits around the temper. But you know what's interesting about that, I guess, Ben, is that just preceded 9/11, and then post 9/11, the SAS becomes uh, very much a, a, an active tool of Austra Australian uh, foreign policy. Um, how did how did you find your first uh, deployments to the Middle East? I mean, the, the word that was right in the, the, the tip of my tongue when you asked that question was exhilarating. I mean, it, a lot is made of, uh, rightly so, of, you know, the, the horrors of, of war. And, and by no means um, through this response am I, am I saying that, that war is anything other than generally a miserable experience for everyone involved. Um, however, there is still some kind of, I guess... Um, professional satisfaction in in terms of being used for what you, you've trained for and so that that sort of level of excitement I guess uh, is is a fairly common reaction across the board for people deploying for the, the first time and and being able to uh, use I guess put into practice the the training that you've, you've spent in some cases a lifetime uh, leading towards um, but also at that stage we went in very early after uh, 9/11 um, 
there was still a very clear, in my mind, uh, link between you know the transnational terrorism, the the sort of AQ training camps that had spawned 9/11, and what we were doing in Afghanistan. And so I think there was um, a, a very clear requirement down at the military level. Mm, mm. Um, obviously, as things evolved, I, I think that probably became uh, more and more opaque. But um, yeah, at the time, it was it was um, yeah I, I think a, a sort of justified mission, and, and as I said, professionally. Uh, quite an exciting one. And you would have been working quite closely with the UK SAS and American Special Forces. Uh, what marks the Australian SAS out from the regiment and the Green Berets? Mm. We, we certainly, that is quite correct. We have worked very, very closely with um, uh, those organisations since that time. And um, I'm extremely proud to say that I, I consider our, our soldiers of, of equal calibre in, in terms of an individual level. Um, what I think you, you just can't replicate is the kind of scale um, of particularly the US uh, approach to special operations. And so all the sort of enablers, the technical enablers, the equipment, the assets, the manpower that, that really drive, you know, the, the special operations. Um, we, we sort of don't have that same sort of scale. We, we've certainly mm. got the capability at an individual level, but um, not the all of the, the machinations behind it. So um, I think it, there's a very there's some level of commonality, and I, I reckon there's probably a PhD in there somewhere that the people who go through these processes you tend to get um, uh, a similar sort of person, and there's that shared bond. Even though you haven't been through the same course, mm. You, mm. you you share a, a sort of same sort of uh, tribe um, and so yeah we, we had very fond and close relationships and like I said pound for pound I, I think um, certainly at a, a comparable level with, with our British and American counterparts. Uh, what do each of those forces do better than us? I mean, you, do, you talked about the, Ameri the American uh, sort of access to equipment in particular. Yeah. What, what is it that, uh, that, that, the, we, that you look to the British to, uh, to, to inform the Australian SAS on? I think um, in many cases, the big differences are how their governments choose to use the military. Obviously, US foreign policy has a very mm. different um, slant on the, the use of military force. And I think the British uh, still, you know, from the, the days of empire, still still view their, their military as a as a probably a more active tool mm. of foreign policy than Australia would. And so it was interesting to compare and contrast the kind of um, approaches that... that um, the US and UK militaries were were, were getting directed to take. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was quite instructive. As I mentioned before, I think um, particularly the US, their, their integration of intelligence and uh, developing, you know, particularly in the height of uh, sort of Iraq, that kind of period, developing target packs from multiple sources of information and different sort of means... Uh, was was very mature and very sophisticated. The kind of stuff that Stanley McChrystal talks about in in his Team of Teams book, that kind of multidisciplinary integration, uh, I think is is um, something we we learnt a lot from. And to tell you the truth, mm. I think has a lot of applications. I mean, there's a reason why that book's a bestseller in in sort of business fields as well. It's got a lot of applications outside of uh, the purely military or national security arenas. 
Yes, indeed. A bit like uh, Sun Tzu sort of being uh, perennially updated for, uh, for yeah. business audiences. Yeah. How, how do you think about your leadership style in the field? Um, I know one of your uh, soldiers, Andrew Hastie, says that uh, his uh, endu- the, the enduring uh, story he has about you is, is that rather than leading from the back uh, when the bullets were flying, you were somebody who uh, people would look over to and, and see, see you right next to them. Uh, what, what is it about that you, you, you think, think about your leadership in action? I think one of the big things within the unit, um, I mean, one of the very interesting things about military leadership is you're often in a position where you're the leader, but you are the least experienced person in that organisation, particularly at the junior levels. If you think of a platoon commander, so a young, maybe 19, 20-year-old individual, um, straight out of Duntroon, you might have had 18 months of training, and then all of a sudden you're in charge of of 30 Australian soldiers, um, some of whom have had, you know, a full career. The the platoon sergeant will, will have had a full career in the military. And so instantly that, that makes a very interesting dynamic where... Um, you need to be able to leverage off the the skills and capabilities of the people below you and um, you need to be very reliant on them but you also need to have some ability to back your own decisions and and to have the confidence to get up in front of those people and say we're going to charge that machine gun nest and and follow me Um, and so that kind of dynamic um, is I think a really good uh, sort of formative one and certainly um, <laughs> within the regiment, you, as you come in as a young troop commander, you again are the the least experienced person. Main difference is that in the regiment, people will re- remind you of that fact. But again, the machine works very well. They recognise that you bring different skills and characteristics um, uh, to the the dynamic, and that that it's their role as much as anything to help you along to to make the right decisions for the organisation. So, I was always very acutely aware of that and very much sought to to use the the expertise within the the organization and i think looking back the the greatest um challenge that that i would find is is making that decision you know when do you sort of use the advice and and when do you trust your own instinct and that that's constantly a, a sort of judgment battle um going through how important was uh being physically fit to this. Uh, others have talked about you as, uh, as being pretty hardcore, uh, triathlete and cross, yeah. crossfit, um, and that being important in terms of somebody in their late 30s, early 40s, garnering the, the respect of, uh, of, of, a, of, of a more junior sol- a soldier in their, uh, in their 20s. I've, I've got some pretty strong views on the importance of that. Um, so to answer your question, yes, I think that is really important. I think Two things as an army officer, if, if you can, you know, demonstrate a level of physical fitness and, and look the part, uh, and if you can string two words together in, in front of uh, a group of people with some level of confidence, um, that can cover up for a lot of ineptitudes, and in my case has, has very much covered up for a lot of ineptitudes. Um, and, I, you know, on reflecting about that, I, I do a little bit of um, work with the, the AGSM um, teaching a leadership subject there. And I, I talk about this theatre of leadership, and, and it's not to say that you need to be fake or pretend some, you're someone you're not, but it is to say that there is an element of perspective in, in leadership. And so um, while not everyone's going to be that, that sort of six-foot, follow-me-men type character of, of a leader, um, 
you do at times, particularly in, in high pressure times, need to be someone that people can look to with some level of confidence that you, mm. you know how, mm. to, how to get the organisation out of that problem. And so a lot of those, I guess, um, more uh, sort of physical based cues, you know, that you, you look the part and that you can, you can speak confidently uh, can greatly assist in, in that regard. How did you find the the interpersonal uh, cha challenges? Because a lot of your work isn't uh, isn't firing guns; it's having endless cups of chai tea with village elders, right? Uh, that that must have been a, a massive shift from uh, from from a lot of how your your basic training is uh, is setting you up. It to an extent, um, however. And this is another one of those, I think, misperceptions about life in the military. I, I think, and certainly had reflected back to me, that a lot of people think, oh, it must be so easy in the military, you just give an order and it, and it happens. Um, in many cases, and particularly in a unit like the SAS, where you've got really smart, you know, proactive, lateral thinking subordinates, um, it's, <laughs> it's definitely not a, a directive um, sort of environment. You know, you, you need to be... Uh, working with people and, and understanding different perspectives, working out what the you know incentive mechanisms in any given structure are to to try and progress a, an objective, and so much of that is translatable not only in that the military context you just described, but also I think in a in a wider business environment. Um, so yeah, I think we're we're pretty well um, prepared for that and. Particularly, uh, I spoke about that team of teams thing before, when you are working with interagency partners and diplomats and police and Indigenous partners and all that sort of stuff, um, you, you very quickly become attuned to, to working with a whole bunch of different stakeholders with different agendas and, and trying to balance those in, in terms of achieving what you need to. Did you enjoy the tea drinking side of, uh, of Afghanistan? Very much, yeah. It was, it was a fascinating insight. Um, I increasingly, as I get older, believe that if I've got a black and white opinion on any subject, it's a real warning sign that I don't know enough about it. Mm. And so you go into these environments where, and I think he it, who knows only his own case knows little of that. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, we we tend to demonise our enemies, and the media is very good at, at trying to make a reductionist, polarised worldview. So you go in and. Of course, the Taliban are all bad. You know, these these can't. They must be some other. You know, a different kind of sort of evil person. And then you you get to understand the the tribal overlays, the dynamics in there, and it it very quickly becomes shades of grey. And I think um, one of the most uh, I guess uh, telling sort of situations. One of the the soldiers sort of reflected that if we'd grown up in you know, Uruzgan province instead of Perth, you know, we'd probably be fighting for the Taliban. You know, it's just the kind of path that they mm. were on and, mm. and did. And and so many of these people weren't the, the sort of stereotypical enemy character that they were made out to be. So very complicated. And, and getting an understanding of that and I guess a more nuanced appreciation for all the dynamics that were going on in that theatre um, I thought it was a real honour that we were able to, to yes. be in that position to, to really sort of start to, to look at some of the grassroots problems. 
And I guess because you were in there early on, you saw that sort of arc of, uh, of counterinsurgency and the, sort yeah. of the insights of people like McChrystal and David Kilcullen yeah. in pointing out that an overly aggressive approach simply uh, creates more, more and more adversaries. Without a doubt. And, and I think, I mean, Iraq's probably an even more acute example of that, um, that, you know, these are... Well, in both those cases, I think they were viewed as military problems, but of course they weren't. You know, they were governance issues, there was a whole law and order factor, there was industry, uh, employment, all of these sort of um, problems, you know, root cause problems that the military tool can't solve. Mm. And mm. you get into, again, this is a reductionist view, but the, the only tool you've got is a hammer, all you see is nails, you know, without the ability to have your... Um, uh, you know your state departments, or, or you know, in our case, obviously DFAT or DFIT in the in the UK example, um, right alongside from that early point to try and rebuild the infrastructure that the wider society is going to need, then you just perpetuate this military problem, and and you have the second order effects that we saw. Now you're a a big fan of uh, of having multiple skills, and uh, you had this quote uh, from Robert Heinlein's science fiction novel *Time Enough for Love* in a recent presentation, which uh, goes as follows: A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialisation is for insects. It's about the most anti-economics quote I can ever imagine, given that, uh, that, that my, my discipline is one that, uh, that, that lords specialisation. Uh, what, what do you like about it? I came across that uh, quote through CrossFit, actually. So Greg Glassman, who started CrossFit, I think used that specialisation is for insects bite, um, as a, a bit of a justification for the the physical approach they were they were taking that you know you want to whatever he says outlift a runner outrun a lifter type thing um, and then I, I, I think that's a, a wonderful sort of synopsis of what it means to be a human being and and what we should aspire to and um, certainly from my perspective I spoke about this team of teams concept um, and we we were just talking about the the you know military tool trying to mm. to do other things. I like that idea of, of having the exposure to a whole bunch of different ideas and even just a base level understanding of the different requirements of a wide spectrum of vocations. Um, I think it makes you a richer human being, but I also think it makes you fundamentally better at your job. And in fact, um, Charlie Munger, the um, Warren Buffett's uh, right-hand man at, at Berkshire Hathaway, talks about uh, having a latticework of models, which is a very similar sort of concept. That mm. um, He talks about getting these big ideas from big disciplines. So you understand a bit of psychology and you understand a bit of medicine, a bit of economics and a bit of what the military does and a bit of what government, how government works. And that kind of latticework gives you a much richer worldview and it provides a better and more sophisticated lens through which to look at a problem. It sort of guards against that, you know, the only tool I've got is a hammer, you know, maybe this isn't a military problem, maybe this is a, you know, primary care medical problem or something. So um, I, I, I like that idea. And look, I love the, um, the sort of Renaissance man, Renaissance person mm. concept. I mean, none of these... Um, individuals were, were one-trick ponies. You've got 
the, the poster boy Leonardo da Vinci sort of painting and sculpting and inventing and drawing and coding and, you know, all, right, all right. sorts of things. Yeah, which, you know, even from, from my... <laughs> Please do not think I'm comparing myself to Da Vinci or even even putting myself up as a Renaissance individual. But having pursuits outside of your your primary vocation, I think, is a very healthy thing. So you're in this interesting position, being uh, in your mid mid forties and now having finished a, finished a career. What are the other lattices, to use Charlie Munger's term, sure. that you're, you're looking to acquire over the coming decades? Look, I am very much enjoying the the business aspect of what I'm doing at the mm. moment. So. Um, I'm extremely relieved um, because it probably means we can keep paying the mortgage, but I'm extremely relieved that, that a lot of the military skills are very transferable and, and I think we are offering um, through our consultancy different ways of looking at things, maybe mm. another different layer in the, the lattice work to a lot of businesses. So that that's um, good. But one of the things that I'd never done in any great depth is, is sort of that business, the, the hard-nosed sort of um, profit loss statements. Uh, type uh, work and and this is a, a, a wonderful new challenge as, as part of this this new business. Um, look, I, I've also over the last I don't know five years really got into painting as well, which mm. again is that sort of something outside of that that um, uh, primary occupation, and have been really enjoying that and want to keep pursuing that throughout throughout uh, the remainder of my years. So yeah, though. Those kind of things. I mm. think always having that that next challenge is is pretty healthy. Did you get to know Ben Quilty when he was over in Afghanistan? I didn't. Okay. No. In fact, his cousin Andy Quilty is an artist out of Rockingham who I've had a, quite a bit to do with. He um, worked as part of a military arts program, so he's donated very generously his mm. time, taught a number of classes, and I got to know him through that. And just a spectacular guy, real champion. Yeah. Ben, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Look, I, I would tell myself to lighten up a little bit. I think I was very serious um, as a teenager and, and I mentioned before at ADFA my, my probably one regret is not pursuing some of the, the, uh, the, um, the traditional university pursuits as, as much as I should have. Um, but I, I would certainly seek to, to a bit earlier... Um, I, I sort of explained a, a bit earlier the the idea of um, benchmarking, you know, small little accomplishments as, as stepping stones towards other things. I, I would have started that process a little earlier. Mm. So the physical side of things, I, I, as we mentioned before, I, I would have done that a bit earlier. Um, but yeah, I, I really think that that idea of exploring a whole bunch of different things and not being so concerned about you know, just getting the, the good grades. I think we tend to put a lot of pressure, and I think it's increasing on, on kids that, you know, you've got to do well at year 12. Mm. I mean, my brother's a great example who just never really sort of got into a groove at high school and, you know, everyone thought, oh, he's going to drop out. And anyway, he, he sort of subsequently uh, became a doctor and ended up in the military as well and, you know, done these amazing things from there. And you know, it was just a timing thing for him. Mm, and and mm. I think there's so much pressure that you need to have it squared away by, you know, age 16, 17. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd suggest lighten up a bit. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff after after the teenage years where you can still choose your path. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I have drifted away from formalised religion. Um, I was uh, christened and baptised and all that sort of stuff as a kid. Um 
and I, I do still have faith. I know that always sounds like a cop-out, but um, I do think there is a concept of goodness that is bigger than just the, the day-to-day transactions um, on a, a purely sort of existential level. But the more I've seen, and I guess my military um, experience has played a big role in this, the, the concept of formalised religion um, uh, I increasingly struggle with. Um, Did that shift come post-deployment? I mean, there's the old cliche, there's no atheists in foxholes. Yeah, and, and I think that probably speaks to this idea of faith and, and idea of, of a goodness, you know, that and I think just... Um, I mean, my father was a, a great example. He was not a religious person, um, certainly not in a practising sense, but he was the most, I guess, small-c Christian person I, I knew. I mean, he never drove past someone broken down on the road and he'd, you know, he'd pick up rubbish and he'd, you know, if he found a wallet, he'd go to pains to return it with all its money. You know, these kind of mm. what I guess is codified in any of the major religions, you know, the, the Ten Commandments type behaviour, um, but without the, I guess, the, the institution around it. So um, that that was certainly an influence. And But, yeah, I do think, um, you know, in this current IS, ISIS um, type situation where you're just seeing this awful, you know, the most barbaric human manifestations of power, you know, just these awful um, acts being conducted in God's name, I mean... I find that a, a sort of disturbing perversion of what are pretty noble institutions. And so for me, it, it makes sense to to practice being a good human being outside of a, a religious construct. When are you most happy? Well, this is going to sound like a cliche, but the my family is just this amazing um, achievement. And it took me a while... I mean, this is probably one thing I would tell my teenage self that I think we get filled with this idea that, you know, relationships are love at first sight across a crowded room and happily ever after. And it baffles me still. I, I, I can't reconcile this, but, you know, we, we spend all this time and effort professionally developing ourselves and getting degrees and courses and blah, blah, blah. And yet we think our relationships, the, the most important part of things, should just come by osmosis or naturally or something and and so this idea that that the family side of things my relationship with my wife my kids you know it's this constant it's just messy you know there's, there's things going everywhere and it's it's not like it is in the the mm. romantic comedies and that sort of stuff but it's just so wonderful you know and so just those little um vignettes that you have you know we're walking down the beach yesterday and just little snapshots like that that aren't ends in themselves but when you reflect they're they're the things that I think make you happy and and um you know a big part of this career change for me has been looking at well what is my definition of success or happiness Mm. what do I want to be when I grow up um and I think I'd always just thought well it means that next rung on the ladder or a bigger paycheck or you know the next rank and status and all that sort of stuff and I think probably happiness is is probably closer to those little vignettes and if you can string as many of those together as you you can you're probably doing all right what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy without a doubt um some level of of physical activity and this is we built we've just finished building a house and we, we built a little gym at the the back of our garage and so my wife and i will train there in the morning and that is 
um, just a wonderful time that we spend together mm. and, you know, it's a great, obviously, the physical side of things. Um, I think that is crucial, some level of, of physical exercise. It, it, I think it just enriches life in, a, in sort of a whole bunch of different ways. Do you do weights or cardio? Or? Mainly weights. I need to get back into cardio. In fact, I want to get back into to running. I mean, you're, you're a distance runner. Yeah, marathon runner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd done a number of marathons um, way back when and loved that. I think the romance of it, you know, the loneliness of a long-distance run, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I'd, I'd love to get back into that. And, and I think we'll at, at some point. But, yeah, for the time being, it, we, we do sort of weights and crossfit style stuff mm. in the gym, yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do. I've got um, terrible taste. Well, yeah, terrible taste in, in both music and, um, and movies. So I, I mentioned rom-coms before, you know, I've... I've watch the occasional rom-com and, and, and sort of don't mind them. And, in fact, I do remember um, – so my, my playlist on my, my phone is embarrassing. And I remember <laughs> accidentally we were on deployment up in Timor at one stage and we had this combined sort of bush gym. Um, and so there were these enormous commandos in there and a bunch of guys from my troop. And um, there was no music and so I plugged my iPod in not thinking and, and you know, play – the first couple of songs were, you know, respectable gym song, workout songs, and then – I can't remember if it was Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera or, you know, <laughs> a real clanger came and it just stopped the whole gym. And um, foolishly, I, I sort of went over to rectify it, but, of course, in the process, it, you know, owned up to, to it being my <laughs> playlist. I, I didn't sort of quite lift that down. So, yeah, I, I reckon um, yeah, pop music is probably pretty high on the list of guilty pleasures. And finally, Ben, uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think my father, I mentioned before, um, it was quite, it was actually really surprising. So he died of lung cancer last year um, and had smoked two packs a day for 50 years, so that's going to kind of catch up to you. And he'd been diagnosed about a year prior, um, but as it turned out, the end game came quite quickly. And so all throughout that year, he had been amazingly philosophical um, and in hindsight had made his passing so much easier on us by choosing to reflect on you know he'd, he'd say you only ever promised three score and ten and you know I got an extra two years on that and he'd, he'd talk about how proud he was of us and um, so he really filled that that last year with with very positive reflections mm. um, he he sort of um, the, the end game, as I said, was very quick. I bolted over from Perth to Sunshine Coast where he was, got in at midnight. They, the hospital sort of called us at five in the morning and we bolted in and, and he passed within about oh, eight minutes of us arriving. So it was, you know, this this amazing sort of... I think he was hanging on. He wasn't conscious. Anyway, um, we, we then had the funeral very shortly after that and it was this amazingly cathartic and uplifting experience people came from everywhere and and dad he had a very a, a good military career but he was never chief of army or any of that sort of stuff he he'd always provided of us for us but we were never rich um so those metrics he hadn't you know mm. sort of risen to the top of industry or, or made a million dollars but people that didn't have to come to this funeral came and and shared reflections on him as a good human being and it, it sort of validated what my brother and I had always thought that you know he was one of the good guys and as I mentioned before not a, not traditionally sort of um, 
you know, religious or any of those sort of things. But that concept of goodness that I spoke mm. about before, I mean, he, he was probably up there in, in terms of being an ethical individual. And, and yeah, I, I definitely try and replicate um, those kind of characteristics. Well, Bill, Ben Pronk, uh, soldier, athlete and leader, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to share your insights on the Good Life podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.